Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. This week, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, handed down Australia's budget, and today we're going to be discussing the values and the leadership style behind that budget. Anna Greta, this is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, Sharon, we've been talking about this federal budget now for since the election last year, and I think with some great hopes as to the future, and so today's conversation is one that I'm certainly looking forward to immensely. The federal budget is, of course, a reflection of the values of a nation. It creates a narrative about its leadership and about its future goals. This week, Jim Chalmers has handed down his second budget, a budget that aims to balance the needs of the people and the challenges of the current economic environment. And it appears to create that balance well, lifting the level of support for low-income Australians and those on social security payments, as well as offering Australia its first budget surplus in 15 years. Last year, we'd seen some signs of more significant structural change, talk of well-being, a well-being budget, an approach that integrates economic, society and environment as goals for fiscal policy. But in a year that, in which economic policy has been dominated by talk of inflation, the structural shifts that perhaps could have happened have been maybe more muted. Despite this, it is a remarkable budget created by a new treasurer and his team who are committed to using economics to achieve social change in Australia and who've created a budget that some are describing as the best in quite some time. So to discuss the tone, the tenor, the spending decisions made in this federal budget, we are joined by Frank Bongiorno. Frank Bongiorno is Professor of History here at the Australian National University with a particular interest in the history of the Australian Labor Party. His most recent book, which is a fabulous read, is Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, and that was published last year. Frank, welcome to you. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you back on the pod. I, I wanted to begin by asking um, what, what your reflections are, what you think of this budget, and what you think of the values and ideas that, that have informed it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there will be, I think, a lot of commentary about this um, over the weeks to come. Are we seeing significant change? Frank, would you like to start us off with with your broad reflections? Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, I I think it's probably about as good a budget as we could expect in the circumstances. And what I have in mind uh, in terms of those circumstances is the anticipation of 
worse economic times. So even though um, this budget uh, delivers a surplus in the first for many years, I think, um, well, it projects uh, future deficits and also just um, an expectation of a a slower growth, uh, including pressure on uh, employment, as you'd expect. Um, But the other setting that's really problematic for this government um, is that there are big tax cuts ahead, including for very uh, well-off Australians. And that has provided, I think, um, a a key part of the context in which this budget is being delivered, um, what it can afford to give in terms of relief for those who are less well-off is basically being conditioned by the fact that you've got, I think, about $69 billion um, uh, essentially um, in tax tax cuts for the wealthy over the forward estimates period, over the four years. So I think in those circumstances, um, the budget is probably as good as um, it could be in terms of its its sort of social justice and, and redistributive aspects. Yeah, the the nuance of the of the economics here is really quite remarkable to come up with a surplus in this particular environment and after a decade of, of very interesting politics in Australia. I'm interested in the political strategy that's gone into this budget as well. It's been particularly interesting to watch the debate that's been fostered in the weeks beforehand, the the usual leaks, but leaks that I thought were were really starting us around discussion of some of the serious issues of our time, things like whether to raise the rate of job seeker, the sort of support that we give to people who are living in precarity, the single parent supports, and the debate, as Frank's already mentioned, about the stage three tax cuts. It really did strike me that this government is interested in fostering robust discussion about issues such as poverty and around economic responsibility. What did you make of their political strategy around the budget? Frank, I'd be really interested in your thoughts. Well, I think this is a government that deserves some credit for for allowing debates to run around a whole range of issues. I mean, I'm aware of it in one particular area uh, of great interest to me, and that's arts and cultural policy, where, you know, it it has um, appointed, uh, you know, advisory committees and and basically allowed a debate to run. And when it's delivered its budget measures, they don't entirely reflect the advice that that, that is out there and which it's it's pretty open about getting and and i think that there's an element of that with the budget more generally um it's obviously allowed a debate to run over social security issues it appointed an economic inclusion committee that committee made a recommendation uh, around increasing um the job seeker payment uh for a while there it looked like the government would confine any increase to the over 55s uh, in the budget, it has delivered a pretty modest increase of $40 a, f- a fortnight more generally, um, which sort of moves in the right direction, but, geez, very slowly. Uh, it, it basically also says that anyone on a job seeker payment will remain well and truly below the poverty line. And, of course, people's sense of the possibilities here and their expectations um, were rightly raised by the, the COVID period where um, uh, there were very significant increases that basically dragged a lot of people temporarily out of poverty. Um, this will be a problem for the government going forward. Um, there will be continuing pressure, and again, quite rightly, I think, on a government that says it's driven by values, 
such as economic and social inclusion to ensure that it doesn't confine one particular category of welfare recipients, those looking for a job, uh, to a, a kind of more or less permanent poverty. And it's a real problem given the current cost of living issues and in particular the cost of housing, um, which is inaccessible really to people on those sorts of payments. So um, full marks to the government for some movement here, but it's nowhere near enough. And it's certainly not enough in the context of the the big $25 a day tax cuts that it's going to deliver um, to the wealthy in the very near future, uh, because it, it basically um, went to the last election supporting uh, an initiative of uh, the Morrison government. Frank, you started to to talk about you know some of the things that I want to pick up on and and delve into a little more deeply here. Um, you know, in, in my view, the budget doesn't go far enough to seriously dent poverty in Australia, um, but it does make a start, as you say. And I think that that increase in JobKeeper is remarkable, and it's a remarkable shift. Even though people who are relying on working age benefits in Australia will still be living in poverty, um, and I think our listeners are not going to be surprised by by me making those comments that that I don't think it went anywhere near far enough around poverty. Um, but I do think one of the most important shifts was that change in the eligibility for single parent payment. So the parents um, are now moved to job seeker when their youngest child is fourteen rather than eight. And this reverses a terrible example of the absence of care in government policy. One of the things that I hear repeatedly um, in my research is parents talking about their dread of their child's eighth birthday. No single parents talking about that dread. And often children being very aware that when they turn eight, the circumstances of their family is going to change. And that's horrendous to hear children and their parents talking about. Frank, I'd really love to hear you you talk a little bit more about how you think this budget um, compares with the efforts of previous governments to foster justice and equity. How important is the shift that we're starting to see in resetting the way we think about inequality and fairness in Australia? Well, look, Sharon, I think if we um, think of a budget um, as I think Anna Greta said at the beginning, as, as a statement of values, as, as what a, a government stands for. I mean, clearly there are a lot of very positive signs in this particular budget. And the one you mention uh, is, is certainly emblematic. Um, the Gillard government received a lot of blame for effectively acquiescing in that policy or continuing that policy, which I think went back even further to coalition governments. And uh, as you point out, I mean, it, it, it is, um, punishes parents as well as children, um, and it lacked fairness. Um, uh, politicians often talk about the pub test, and it, it, it clearly doesn't pass that. Um, in the same way as the job uh, seeker rate doesn't pass any pub test, I mean, if you um, basically have a rate set at a level that guarantees poverty, um, you don't have a functioning welfare state. And um, we know at the moment that there are particular problems in Australia, and especially metropolitan Australia, with uh, housing, which which means that you're effectively uh, um, consigning such people to, to um, incredible distress, I think, in terms of, of, of um, their ability to gain access to shelter, which most of us would regard as a, a right, not a privilege. Um, so 
Um, look, it, it does head in the right direction. I mean, the government will point to the fact that we can't see any particular measure in isolation. It's also increased its support for bulk billing. And I know just from speaking to my own students how important something like bulk billing is and the accessibility of Medicare bulk billing if you don't have much money because um, your medical expenses can mount uh, very uh, quickly. They'll also point to um, the downward pressure that they're placing um, on household energy bills, you know, another major area of, of you know, the household budget for most people. So, and, and, you know, I think that's a reasonable claim too, that we shouldn't just see, um, you know, any of these measures in isolation. They need to be seen as part of a broader budget package. Um, but um, there, there is still a long way to go. And in a really difficult fiscal environment and potentially a, a very difficult macroeconomic environment going forward. So, um, you know, th- this is a government that I think is going to have to um, really turn its attention to the issue of welfare payments more generally. When I look back to the Rudd era, I see, you know, many failures, but one thing that it did um, and, and and deserves full commendation for was its really serious increase in the level of the pension, the, the age pension. And, and, you know, I think this is a government that needs to turn to especially to the unemployment benefits um, to, to job seeker. And again, in a context where we may well see rising unemployment in the not very distant future. I mean, if the projections that we're getting from Treasury about growth um, turn out to be accurate, um, we could find ourselves not just in an inflationary environment for a while, but also in one that uh, sees a a rise in in unemployment. And and that will mean that a lot more people are going to be seeking access to JobSeeker. It is a complex economic environment and, and certainly I'm sure that for many listeners the, the change in the healthcare environment has been a significant one, as you mentioned, um, improving rates of bulk billing and, and it does address some of the uh, economic challenges for people who are working in primary care as well. So there are significant changes. When we spoke about uh, childhood maltreatment on a recent episode, that, that this is part of the argument for a wellbeing framework shift is if we do address poverty in a, in a deep way, that we can decrease the need for, um, for healthcare intervention. And so that might be part of what we, we can see, fo- a conversation that we see fostered over the years ahead. But we're going to bring this part of the conversation to a close just shortly, and I'd like to finish by talking about the the overall uh, impact of this budget. It appears to be informed by intelligent and nuanced political, social and economic strategy. And I'm wondering, is this a transformative government? Are we seeing echoes of a Whitlam-esque type government change? Are we looking at parts of the Hawke-Keating government? Are we looking at the sorts of changes and the transformation that took place when John Howard was elected? Or is the velocity of change different in our era of a time of multiple crises and more polarised politics? I'm wondering very much on to hear both of your thoughts on the contemporary Australian politics and the way in which we can offer hope in these complex times. Frank, do you think this is a transformative government? Are we seeing a seismic shift in politics or is this the same as what we've seen in the last decade? Um, I think it's very hard to say whether it's going to be a transformative government, you know, if, if we look at it in, you know, the kind of very wide context or long, long context of Australian political history since Federation, you know, 120-odd years, it's probably too early to say. I mean, it it has set out its identity and approach 
um, in quite obvious contrast with some of the governments we've had in the more recent past, the emphasis on orderly process, on fostering trust, um, on you know, being an adult government, all of that is an implied critique of some of the wilder aspects, I think, particularly of the Morrison period. Um, but also, you know, I think, you know, looking back to, to um, you know, the, the, some of the chaos that we saw under both Abbott and uh, Turnbull, I think there's also a quiet critique going on there of, of the Rudd government, frankly, of, of a government that set too many hairs running at, at once, um, in which there was a lack of follow through, um, in which debates were certainly allowed to run, but they were allowed to run in a, a, a way um, that, that saw them lurch entirely out of the control of that government. One thinks of the you know, climate change debates and, and, and debates over the mining tax and all the rest of it. So I think this is a government that looks like it's learnt from some of those uh, failures. Um, that, that's not frightened, I think, of, of letting a debate run. Um, that's not utterly obsessed with winning every day in the media and, and which wants to, you know, to turn itself into uh, a, a, a long-term or at least medium-term government. I mean, the, the, the phrase that was often used during the 1980s in relation to the Hawke government was the idea of turning Labor into the natural party of government. And again, the context for that is that Labor's almost never been the natural party of governments. I mean, the, for the Commonwealth, for the history of, of, of you know, since Federation, the non-Labor parties have governed for about two-thirds of the time. Labor has governed for about a third of the time. Uh, so... Labor, you know, Labor governments tend to be almost uh, aberrant in, in many respects. And I think um, this is a government that's determined that um, when it introduces a change, when it introduces good policy, evidence-based policy, that it's going to stick. And the only way it can make it stick is by achieving some sort of longevity. So, you know, if one is inclined to a more generous reading of this budget, um, you'd basically do it in those terms, that this is a government that understands that you're not going to solve every problem that's accumulated over a long period in one or two budgets, um, that at, at, at a minimum, you're going to need a couple of terms to really have a big impact on a lot of these key social and economic indicators. And uh, that uh, the only way you're going to be able to do that is through a fairly cautious and orderly approach. Um, I mean, I can kind of see why this government is so reluctant to do anything in relation to those stage three tax cuts, because it doesn't want to end up being accused of a government that breaches faith. It doesn't want to raise the spectre of, you know, the, the Abbott and Hockey 2014 budget, which broke a whole bunch of core promises. So I can kind of see what they're doing, but the pressure will remain, I think, for a government that calls itself values-based and values-driven to, to, to look at some of these, uh, you know, really key areas of policy for those who um, are marginalised, those who are excluded. So potentially really quite a transformative approach, I think, but we time will tell uh, and perhaps it is a budget that, that sets up a, a multi-term government. Listeners, we will take a short break here and return to continue unpacking the most recent federal budget. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Frank Bongiorno talking about the most recent Australian federal budget. Um, Frank, I just wanted to to, to shift pace a, a little bit in, in this second half of our conversation um, and think a bit more broadly about changing attitudes in Australia. Um, last October's budget was framed as the beginning of a wellbeing budget and the Treasurer then wrote the essay in the monthly which was criticised more than embraced by the progressive side of politics and was pretty much roundly condemned by the conservative side. This budget didn't continue so strongly with that narrative of well-being, although we see elements that may underpin a future well-being approach. Anna Greta and I have been reflecting on what's happening here and we'd love your thoughts. Why didn't that monthly essay, regardless of the style or the quotes that were used from ancient Greek philosophers, trigger the serious debate that it really deserved? Have we become cautious as a nation in engaging with new and radical ideas? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the essay that um, Jim Chalmers produced for the monthly um, projected, yeah, a kind of a values-based capitalism, didn't it? Um, but it seemed to me... Um, really to lack a kind of core set of ideas um, in contrast, for instance, with similar kinds of essays produced by Kevin Rudd, um, you know, 15 or so years ago, um, you know, where he kind of proclaimed the end of neoliberalism and, and there, there did seem to be a much stronger sense of of, of where um, he wanted to take the country economically. I, I didn't gain that from uh, the Chalmers essay, I have to say, and, and uh, you know, it, ga- it gained um, quite a bit of media attention, some reasonably friendly, some hostile, and some kind of, uh, I suppose, you know, um, shrugging of the shoulders, and I'm probably was somewhat in the third of those categories. Um, he has spoken about the idea of well-being budgets from um, uh, you know, well before Labor won, won office. I mean, you remember he was ridiculed for it by uh, the, the previous treasurer, Josh, Josh Frydenberg. Um, I think um, it, it reflects to some extent, obviously, you know, m- much broader um, changes in thinking about, um, I guess, an old concept in a way, quality of life um, and the, the importance of thinking about economic indicators in a much broader context. Um, the term work-life balance has now been around for a very long time, for instance, and I suspect that the, that the pandemic in particular has shifted a lot of these sorts of debates. I mean, you know, some of the key 
debates in Australia today are not about, you know, narrow economic indicators. They're about, you know, what should be the appropriate balance between working from home and, and um, uh, you know, working in an office or, or some other workplace. And how do you manage that? How do you manage that in terms of people's home lives as well as their working lives? How do we deal with the gender implications of that sort of approach? We know from studies done by the Grattan Institute, for instance, quite early in the pandemic, I guess in 2021, uh, that uh, women often bore the burden of this move, this shift towards the home becoming, um, you know, more of a site of production of work, that that it was often women who bore, um, you know, who had to carry the burden of that sort of transformation. So, um, you know, it's it's promising, I think, that we're talking in these sorts of terms again. Um, You remember that, I think it was the Abbott government uh, abolished the uh, the women's statement that went with budgets going all the way back to 1984 that, that basically set out the implications of particular budget measures for, for women. I think we've returned to that sort of statement. That's an important thing to do because um, it, it matters a lot. These these issues are very much on the agenda. If, if um, there was one cohort that was absolutely critical, I think, to the result of the last election. It was women, um, and and so it's it's entirely both sensible and just that this government should be uh, looking at its budgets uh, or its budget in 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 these sorts of contexts. I think. Frank, you've touched on the issues that really have increasingly taken central stage in Australian politics, and and it strikes me that this is a shift from some of the more toxic politics that dominated debate over the last decade. Do you think we are seeing um, the as as a nation that we are beginning to appreciate the benefits of good quality political debate in contrast to the toxic polarizing politics that we've experienced over the last decade? Do you, do you think the Australian population is on board for this? Perhaps reflected through the the election of um, a larger than usual crossbench. Well, I think the signs are very good at the moment. Um, the, the last election was a very ambiguous result, wasn't it? Um, we, we saw certainly a great surge of support for minor parties and independents and a very poor primary vote even for the winning party, the Labor Party in the low 30s, um, uh, not much better for the coalition. Uh, it was a real shake-up in all sorts of respects. That It was widely interpreted as as a statement on those toxic politics of, of you know, the last decade, if not longer. Uh, so, in that sense, the signs are good. Since the election, the government has travelled um, pretty well in the polls, I think, and, and of course, won a, a surprise by election, really, in Aston, a seat on the sort of, um, you know, in outer Melbourne that has uh, generally leaned um, uh, towards the Liberal Party. And so, you know, as far as we can tell, um, people are responding positively to what does seem to be a new approach to government. It's one where where I think it is more consultative, um, where, where, where there is um, much more of an emphasis, I think, on letting debates run in the community. This government has unleashed an enormous number of commissions and inquiries, um, uh, you know, which does recall the Whitlam government in, in, in many respects. And uh, that's a good thing. I mean, um, it, it's likely to lead to better evidence-based policy if you, you do 
you know, some decent sort of inquiries into things like the Reserve Bank or immigration or um, whatever it happens to be. I guess the RoboDebt Royal Commission also comes into this in terms of hopefully improving the quality of government. Um, but of course, it also raises expectations. Um, Albanese has from time to time, particularly I think at the last election, um, deployed a language of universalism. The most obvious place he did that was in relation to childcare. The first of the, the budgets back in October last year um, was very much about uh, election promises and, and childcare was one of those. Um, inevitably, in, in this sort of situation, people's expectations of what government can deliver will be raised. We're already seeing um, something that was utterly predictable because uh, it happens with every Labor government um, that you know, very quickly, um, there are criticisms from further to the left that they're not doing uh, things fast enough, they're not doing enough, they've become beholden to the bureaucracy, they're too close to business. Uh, those criticisms often um, carry weight. Um, we, we shouldn't dismiss them. Uh, but that said, they're also the kinds of criticisms that have attached to every Labor government I can think of, basically going all the way back to at least 1910 and Andrew Fisher. Uh, they certainly attach to the Hawke government, for instance, uh, coming out of the 1983 election. Uh, similar things uh, were said about Rudd before terribly far into that government. So, um, you know... Uh, I'm not suggesting for a moment they should be treated as a grain of salt, but they um, they they do reprise, I think, critis- common criticisms of of Labor governments that that you know um, for very good reasons can't do everything at once. Frank, that's such an extraordinary mapping of of how we can think about you know current politics and current policy decisions in in, in historical context, um, and also of the the challenging context that the current government finds itself in. This is a conversation that I would like to keep going for much much longer, but we are going to need to to begin to draw to a close. And as we do close, um, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your thoughts on. Australia's relationship with the United Kingdom. We can't ignore the fact that in the same week um, that as the, the, two, the 2023 budget was brought down, we also had the coronation of a new king in the United Kingdom. And it's striking when we look at the UK at present, how different the political narrative is from that that we've seen around Australia's budget. Principles of wellbeing and caring do appear to be reshaping the political discourse in Australia. And we've seen some genuine concern for those who are doing it tough through the budget measures. And we're also trying to come to terms with the violence and colonisation of our past, particularly through the referendum on The Voice. And it seems that all of this takes us a very long way from that colonial past and also a long way from the current values that appear to be underpinning the British government, um, despite some really progressive things happening in, in Scotland and Wales. You know, in England, we see um, a real kind of winding back of, um, of a concern for those who are um, the most vulnerable. So in closing, Frank, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you see the future of Australia's relationship with the UK and how you see Australia's relationship with its new king. Well, I mean, one of the contexts, I guess, for Australia's relationship with Britain at the moment is AUKUS, um, uh, which uh, involves Australia, the United States and and Britain, um, the United Kingdom, and envisages uh, 
you know, uh, an increasingly close security uh, relationship. And um, that is one of the areas where the Albanese government has been criticised. I mean, the US aspects of it have raised the spectre of, you know, can our sovereignty be uh, preserved in, 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 in this sort of environment? And the UK aspects of it look somewhat nostalgic. Um, and I guess uh, this all, I guess, uh, is happening side by side with um, those developments in Britain, the death of Queen Elizabeth, the coronation of Charles III, um, and a government that, that remains formally committed to a republic, although uh, has basically said that it won't be taking up the issue in this term, that its priority in this, in, in this term is the uh, First Nations voice to Parliament. Um, the government cleared the decks last year with a lot of legislation that clearly wanted to get out of the way by Christmas because of the amount of energy that it realised would be going into the debate over the voice to Parliament this year. And um, yes, that, that issue in a whole range of complex ways is entangled with our relationship with, with Britain and with the British heritage in Australia, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's also very much about um, uh, the, the, the place of Indigenous people, of First Nations people within the policy order that we've been talking about. Um, in, in future budgets, the voice to Parliament uh, will um, have a role to play. And some people are very frightened about this, as if there's something fundamentally troubling or undemocratic about allowing people uh, to, to actually have a say in the policy issues that directly affect their lives. Um, so uh, going forward, um, you know, we, we may well be dealing here with the last budget or perhaps the penultimate budget um, that... that uh, you know, is 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 delivered within an environment where the voice doesn't exist. I mean, the, the signs at the moment, I think, are somewhat promising. I mean, it's still a long way to go, but it may well be that when we sit here uh, in a couple of years' time and we're talking about budgets, one of the things we'll also be talking about is um, the role that the, the voice to parliament played in articulating the interests of Indigenous people in the context of government spending priorities. Frank, what an extraordinary place to leave what has been a very informative and wonderful discussion. It's been so great having you with us to discuss the most recent federal budget. And I think if you listeners like me, you might find your imagination sparked thinking about Australia's future through the prism of the political change we've seen over the last year or so. There is great hope. So thank you so much for your time today, Frank Bongiorno. It's been wonderful having you with us. Absolute pleasure, Anna Greta and Sharon. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Listeners, thank you for joining us for what was a remarkable conversation. It is always such a pleasure to listen to Frank Bongiorno. And that conversation gave us insights not only into the nature of the budget and the values that are underpinning it, but also put that budget into a wider context of Australia's political history. And I think that's such an important thing for us to hear. The budget, as we've heard, was, was certainly not perfect, but it certainly does signal a very new direction in Australia where we are paying close attention to how those who are most vulnerable can be better supported. And that's an exciting trajectory for us to be moving towards. On our next episode, we'll be continuing the conversation around the 2023 federal budget. And we'll be talking with Paul Burke and Elise Klein to get a deeper insight into what the budget means for some significant policy issues in Australia. 
This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've talked about in the show notes. If you liked this episode, and we really hope you liked it as much as we did, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to be able to find out about Policy Forum Pod. We love hearing from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or drop us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. And that's all we have time for until next week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. 